brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined as always by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki, and a very special guest, Dr. Cyrus Askin. We're doing something this podcast that I didn't think we'd ever do. We're going into the realm of infectious disease. We're going to talk about coronavirus. Now, we've been resisting doing this for uh well, a couple of weeks now. And the, and the reasons why are twofold, really. One, we're more of this like lifestyle, behavioral change, get people uh, self-empowered to take control of their own health. That's our main focus. We want to spearhead effort, efforts towards that. And coronavirus, is, it doesn't really play into that uh, very well. And then also, we uh, are very aware that the data, the evidence, and all the stuff that is coming out on COVID-19 is changing literally by the second. And so we don't really feel comfortable, uh, you know, putting out some information that's going to be finite <laughs> and, and cataloged, uh, on the internet with, uh, with all the stuff that's rapidly changing. It's very volatile. So, you know, for those reasons, we were kind of resistant to do this in addition to us not being like infectious disease experts yet here we are overwhelming peer pressure has worked all the tweets, all the DMS, all the Facebook messages, uh, you know, if you, 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 you conned us into doing it, social media. So here we are. Um, and if you were paying attention during the earlier part of that rant, you noticed I mentioned a name that you were probably not familiar with. It's Cyrus Askin. Now, Cyrus went to medical school with Austin and I, and uh, I'm going to let him introduce uh, uh, him uh, himself to the Barbell Medicine listenership. Um, that way you guys aren't just like, hey, uh, who's this guy? <laughs> so uh, Cyrus, give us, uh, give us your background. Introduce yourself to the Barbell Medicine crew uh, outside of just being our our resident troll on the uh, Facebook Facebook page. Yeah. So yes, thank you for uh, thanks for having me on, man. I, I appreciate it. I think this is a an interesting topic to be discussing in a very interesting time. Um, so, like you said, I'm Cyrus Askin. I'm a pulmonary and critical care fellow, uh, which means I'm training in pulmonary and critical care medicine for folks that uh, aren't familiar with our uh, our everyday parlance in the medical world. Uh, I went to uh, undergrad with Austin as well. Interestingly enough, we both went to William and Mary. Uh, then um, the three of us, of course, went to Eastern Virginia Medical School. That's where um, we got our medical doctorates. Um, and then uh, I moved on to San Antonio, where I did uh, residency in internal medicine. I did a year as a chief resident, which is like a staff uh, teaching year, um, administrative year type thing. Uh, and then finally began uh, pulmonary and critical care training also in a large academic center in San Antonio. Um, in addition to doing that, um, I am one of the active correspondents for the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast. I was the first correspondent to um, hop on board with them many moons ago. 
Um, and that, that's been a great experience so far. Um, and then I also do, uh, I'm fortunate enough to, um, help with, uh, Barbell Medicine, um, with, uh, running the Twitter, uh, to the extent that it is still growing. Um, and then, um, also helping with some other kind of, um, more, uh, medically relevant topics, uh, and, and physician outreach type things. Um, so very happy to be here to talk about coronavirus. Of course, uh, like Jordan said, none of us are infectious disease experts and none of us are experts in coronavirus, but we do uh, appreciate the importance of this right now. It's, a, like I said, an exciting and kind of scary time in, in medicine. Um, and so hopefully we'll be able to bring you some useful practical data, um, which is targeted to folks that are not physicians. And, and, uh, and hopefully that'll be, be helpful for you guys. Yep. We just, uh, we felt like we should weigh in on this. As, especially uh, with respect to different behaviors and strategies that everybody can take at home to not only improve the situation that we're facing uh, globally, but also um, improve your health at home. So that includes workouts, dietary stuff. Um, yeah, so we're going to get into all of it. Now, Cyrus, I want you to take the listeners through like where coronavirus came from. Like, what is it? And then how did how did we get here? Uh, because I think a lot of like the historical stuff has kind of been muddled in, between the mainstream media and, you know, different theories out there, like how <laughs> this thing even came about. So, uh, as far as we know, based on legitimate science, what is coronavirus and how did, uh, how did it get to the United States? Absolutely. So this is the part, uh, this is the part of the matrix where Morpheus has the red pill and the blue pill and gives Neo the option of picking which one he's going to take. And so we'll, we will collectively take the red pill and we'll see how far the rabbit hole goes, at least as of today, um, 8.30 p.m. Uh, Central Time on the uh, the 18th of March. So um, to answer your question, um, as best we can tell, December 2019, mid to late December is really when this virus popped up on the scene in uh, the city of Wuhan, China, uh, which is located kind of in eastern China, somewhere between Hong Kong and Beijing. Um, and um, really, it didn't come to national light until the WHO received uh, communication from presumably Chinese health officials regarding a, uh, a, a no- what they thought to be a novel disease um, where uh, they had approximately 41 patients uh, with fever, uh, some imaging findings uh, that were consistent with pneumonia, and they just didn't really know kind of where this was coming from or, or what the cause was. Um, and so that's that was kind of what um, where this all started. Um, the one uh, commonality they were able to identify when doing um, case reviews was that there's the, that all the the folks that, that had this sort of syndrome seem to have either been uh, predominantly working at uh, maybe uh, I'm not entirely sure if they were all employees within the seafood market or if they were all at the seafood market in the same general period of time. But um, but it seems like there's the seafood market in Wuhan, um, which is where this originated. One question that people probably have in order to like piece all these things together is like, well, if this thing's new and, you know, we hadn't, you know, hadn't tested for anything like this before, how, how do we figure out that it was new? You mean like, how did they identify like, huh, this is definitely different than anything else. Like maybe we just weren't testing for the right things or something. Absolutely. That's a good question. So, um, typically when a patient comes in, um, to the hospital with a respiratory complaint that is, uh, concerning enough to run testing, um, 
You know, we do, uh, for example, we may get sputum tests to look for bacteria, which may prompt us to treat with antibiotics. Um, but more recently, we have access to these kind of new um, um, genetic type tests that allow us to um, to uh, determine whether someone may have a, a particular viral infection. Um, and so oftentimes we use what's called a like a respiratory viral panel, which tests for a whole bunch of the common viruses that we, we tend to see, um, which includes coronavirus, because I think it's important to disambiguate some of the terms here. Coronavirus re- refers to a whole family of viruses. Um, you may remember SARS um, from years ago. That was a coronavirus. The um, Middle Eastern Respiratory um, Respiratory Syndrome, that is uh, also a coronavirus. Um, so it's a kind of a family of viruses. Um, so we, we test for uh, that virus or that uh, uh, a representative of that viral family along with a bunch of others. Um, and really, they were all coming back negative. Um, so they weren't, you know, they weren't catching anything. So uh, they did kind of further testing and further testing. And that's when it was determined that um, the common pathogen uh, or the common kind of disease causing thing um, amongst these folks resembled um, the SARS, the SARS virus. Um, and then they did more testing and they realized, oh, this isn't SARS, but it's kind of like SARS. And so that's where they came up with, okay, well, well, this is an un, this is a, a hitherto unknown entity, so we will name it 2019 NCOV or NCOV, um, as in the novel coronavirus, and and then um, since then it's become uh, known as SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the name of the virus. Uh, again, part of the family of coronaviruses. Um, and it causes the disease, which we now all know as COVID-19, excuse me, COVID-19, uh, coronavirus disease uh, 19 as in 2019. Got it. So besides becoming famous in the 2004 Kanye West hit single new workout plan, <laughs> SARS has lived on. Uh, but now we have a second version. So just again, for the listeners at home, coronaviruses have it refers to a family of different viruses. These are thought to like silently circulate in animals. So bats, cats, camels, the dromador type of camels, anteaters, etc. They carry these viruses silently without any sort of cr- symptoms. So it's not like, you know, they have rabies and are foaming at the mouth or anything like that. And then these viruses can be transferred to humans via a mutation. So that's what happened in SARS-1 that came from bats or another type of virus, uh, MERS, which is also from a coronavirus, So, but it, it's a different uh, clinical entity that came from camels. We're not sure where SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, we're not sure what animal vector that came from. But when you read on the internet, oh, it's a zoonotic source, all that means is it came from an animal. That's what it means. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that probably our best guess, I think at, I think at this point in time, we feel pretty confident saying that it was a bat, a bat vector initially um, with an intermediate vector. And when we use the term vector, what we're referring to is uh, it's the thing that carries disease. Um, so um, what we uh, suspect is that there's a, a bat, um, a bat vector, and then an intermediate vector, which in this case was an anteater. Um, and so somewhere along the lines, there was mutation that allowed humans to unfortunately contract the disease. 
Yeah. And so then the next question is like, well, how did it get from the anteater or the bat, you know, to us? Did somebody like eat a bat or eat the anteater? And in general, that's not how we think that this came to be. Rather, there's like this, it's fecal oral transmission. So literally from feces, you know, to to the oral cavity of the human. Um, so, you know, not like people are going around scooping up guano or like whatever the name is for anteater dung. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, some contamination at some point. And then here we are. So that's kind of like how this virus came to be in the population. And yeah, this thing blew up, not just from like the spread standpoint, but also just actual like scientists looking at it, medical researchers looking at it, doctors seeing cases of it, particularly in China. So that leads us into our sort of next discussion of epidemiology, meaning like how many people have it, how fast is it spreading, all this sort of stuff. Austin, you want to give the listenership a kind of picture into what this looks like uh, in the United States. I feel like that's where majority of our listeners are from. That's, you know, obviously where we have the most sort of, you know, uh, uh, I guess interest in, because I think a lot of our readings have been on what's going on in the United States. This doesn't, doesn't mean to say that there aren't other countries who are affected by, uh, by this. Obviously, Italy, Iran, you know, there's cases in a, in a bunch of different places, um, but we have a vested interest in this, obviously. So I think we've looked at it more uh, closely. So Austin, take us through what's going on here uh, uh, in the United States. Yeah. The only thing I would point out on the previous discussion is just, as you said, that coronaviruses are a a family of viruses, and there are four primary strains that circulate around all the time and cause estimated to be about 10 to 15 percent of the common cold. And I bring that up to say that, you know, should somebody say in the audience come down with an illness and they get tested with one of those viral panels and they end up testing for one of the other coronaviruses just to know that there are several other ones and they don't need to like, you know, panic and lose their minds because it's possible to have a coronavirus infection. It's just a one of the standard, you know, four primary strains that circulate around all the time, not the, you know, SARS-CoV-2 that's circulating around now causing this kind of global pandemic. Absolutely. That's a good point to clear. That's a good point to clarify. What and it's it's one of the many viruses that you'll see on the panel. But if you if you get a standard respiratory viral panel and it's positive for coronavirus, that's actually reassuring in the sense that you do not have COVID-19. A standard yeah. respiratory virus panel that your doctor may run that is not designed to test for COVID-19, if it comes positive for coronavirus, that is an entirely separate entity and an and and something that um, yeah that we're not talking about here. Yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of others. There's, there's rhinovirus. There's parainfluenza. A bunch of other ones. Now, I will say that who knows? Maybe in the coming you know months or something like that, uh, the hospital systems may add the novel coronavirus to their standard panels, given how widespread this is. Um, and then you know that would be something just to to clarify, basically, so you know what's going on. Should you be te- should you test positive for one of these? Yeah, that'd be nice. So we could figure yeah. out like who's got the thing or not. Yeah, yeah, but, exactly. So, but right now, if you're positive for coronavirus, it's not the coronavirus. It's, unless it's a specific test for it. Yeah, it's the distant uncle that yeah. we don't know much about, and yeah. only shows up to family reunions, and it's kind of weird. Yeah. So. yeah. So, so as far as the current epidemiology, again, this is as of like this evening, and basically where I've been directing people to go to stay up to date on the statistics on this is the Johns Hopkins uh, uh, Coronavirus Research Resource Center. The CDC website also does this for the U.S., but um, the Johns Hopkins site has global tracking data and things like that. So as of now, there's about 215,000 cases worldwide. 
and about uh, 83, 84,000 people that have recovered. So the remainder would be active infections. Um, but I think that it's really important that everybody understand that these statistics are uh, of mixed quality and reliability. Uh, there's tons and tons and tons of different factors that go into these data that we're ultimately seeing, including things like, you know, testing thresholds. Say, for example, it's pretty intuitive to people that people who are more symptomatic are going to be more likely to pursue tests compared to those who are less symptomatic. Uh, variation in availability or access to testing, how aggressively different nations are testing, different uh, variations in reporting uh, uh, to kind of global organizations, things like that. So the data I, I suspect are, are somewhat unreliable, meaning that there are going to be rather large error bars around all of these numbers. Uh, when we're talking about the epidemiology of it now in the in the us uh you know as of the, on that resource as of the last time i checked there's somewhere between seven and eight thousand uh confirmed cases in the us uh, with about 115 deaths but again both of these numbers by you know tomorrow morning uh after this is recorded these numbers are going to be drastically different um a substantial portion of these cases uh, occurred in washington state uh but again we're seeing more and more uh, of these kind of uh, results come positive in other states around the country as more testing is done. I think we're still uh, doing inadequate or pretty low amounts of testing in the United States, particularly compared to the, uh, some of the other countries. Um, and and again, this is just variation in access to the actual testing kits, how long the tests take to run, the technicians that you need to run the tests, uh, uh, the test characteristics itself, uh, sensitivity and specificity and things like that, and then thresholds for who's actually bothering to go and pursue testing. So that's kind of where we're at right now. But again, like pretty large error bars around this, and it's uh, really changing super, super rapidly. Uh, many people who are listening to this have probably seen some of these like exponential growth graphs and you don't need to be a mathematician to understand how quickly that stuff can change uh, once you get into the upward part of the curve. Yep. And just to give people again at home a, a better perspective of this, uh, Friday the 13th, uh, which was you know, a couple of days ago, five days ago, the cases that were reported by the CDC in the United States was 1,625, something like that, 1,625 confirmed cases. And now, as again, as of March 18, 2020, at uh, 6.37 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, there's over 7,000 cases. Um, and within that, just to kind of reiterate what Austin said, we are pretty sure that not enough tests are being done Uh Based on data from China, for example, uh, it's likely that about 40 to 50% of those who actually were infected with the virus were not identified as cases because they weren't tested or uh, either due, be due to being asymptomatic, having a mild course or other reason, not having access to a test or something like that. So, you know, some very smart individuals are saying, yeah, if you just multiply it by two, the number of cases, you know, you might start getting a, a better picture of like how many people actually have this. And it does appear to be growing pretty, pretty rapidly, spreading pretty rapidly just based on the way these numbers are updating, um, which, which leads us into the next sort of topic, uh, which I think a lot of the listeners at home kind of want to know. They're like, all right, doctors, thanks for the background. I now feel smarter so I can uh, post a better Facebook status. But how long is this thing going to last, right? Uh, like how long are we going to do this voluntary quarantine thing? Um, Cyrus, you want to give people the sort of rundown of how you see this uh, based on your clinical perspective and just kind of uh, what we have right now based on data. Like how long is is this thing going to going to going to last for? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Um, it's uh, the easy answer is we don't know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not just trying to be difficult here. It's, it's very it's a very difficult thing to predict because um, so much of the um, so much of the development of this disease has to do with um, what people do um, and uh, and epidemiologic factors that we simply can't account for uh, perfectly right now. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more uh, later in the podcast. But um, but really, it, it, de- it depends in large part upon kind of individual uh, res- uh, individuals and how they conduct themselves, uh, but also kind of our global and national response. Um, there are some very grave predictions that if we were to do absolutely nothing, uh, it's likely that, you know, as many as 80%, possibly more of the United States could become infected over the course of all of this. Now, again, that's, um, that includes very, very mild cases that wouldn't even, um, you know, you wouldn't bat an eye at all the way up to folks in the intensive care unit that are unfortunately dying, um, because of this. So, um, that's a a very sobering statistic. Of course, um, we're starting to see now in particular over the the last few days, some very uh, aggressive measures being, um, advocated for, um, across the country, which, um, we hope will hashtag flatten the curve, if you will, which we'll talk about also a little bit later. Yeah. Yeah. It, so the 80% estimate, for example, is if we did absolutely nothing, there'd be, you know, over 2 million deaths estimated in the United States. Um, however, that seems likely to be an overestimation based on the steps we're already taking and steps that we're likely to take going forward. So steps that we've already taken, uh, schools, school closures, social distancing of high risk individuals, uh, voluntary quarantine, etc. So we're, we're doing, we're taking some of the steps needed to sort of, uh, to tamp this down, but yeah, it could be, it could be a while. Um, and, and I think you, you said it perfectly. We just, we just don't know. Um, because if you take those steps, for example, too early and then you really remove the restrictions, then you're just going to get the same spike later on. Cause effectively you haven't stopped enough cases from, <laughs> from being you know generated. And then if you do it too late, obviously the problem is that you, yeah, you don't flatten the curve and you got all these, you know, infections. So, uh, it's tough. And I don't envy the folks in positions of power making, um, policy decisions. And again, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll probably touch on this a little bit later, but, but I think that's a very astute point that you make is that timing is really important because again, human nature is human nature. And so if you initiate some super aggressive, hardline quarantine edict, um, eventually that's going to start breaking down. Um, and you hope that that breakdown is not going to coincide with a natural crescendo in the disease process. So you're right. The calculus that goes into this is, is very complicated. Um, and, and that's why this is, um, it's definitely concerning on a population health level. Yeah. So how long is this going to last? Shoulder shrug emoji. We're hoping for shorter rather than longer. And the steps that we're taking right now are all in efforts to modify this trajectory. And uh, we hope we hope that the folks who are making these decisions are are making the right ones. And, and you know, hindsight's going to be twenty twenty on this one. Um, and, but we'll talk about some of those steps later on and kind of weigh in on them. I think to be um, to be as as um, straightforward as possible um, for our listeners, I would expect kind of. Um, August, September to be 
when when hopefully we start to see some significant changes uh, and some shades of normalcy, um, but but it could last even longer. Um, but but the number that we're or the the month we're hearing a lot is kind of August right now. So fingers crossed. Again, March eighteenth, twenty twenty. We're hoping for August, but that that's a moving target. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, this also kind of puts into perspective. You know, there are a lot of positive reports coming out of. Uh, countries like China, uh, for example, like, oh, they don't have enough new cases to keep these special hospitals open. And and that's certainly encouraging. Um, But I fear that a lot of the uh, policies that were implemented were engaged a little early. And so because of the caseload going down, that we're kind of just seeing another calm before a potential storm. That obviously is a risk that might not play out. So we'll see. It's a, it's a tough situation, and and that's very that's another great point that you bring up. I don't want that to be lost. Is that, um, you know, that is a an epidemiologic phenomenon where you have this huge spike in disease, you enact all these great measures, things start to improve, and then you take your um, you know you you take your foot off the gas. Um, and you start to get a little complacent and then you see that second spike. So that's yep. really what we're what we're worried about as clinicians and, and what why this is so important. Yep. So rather than just ham and haw about stuff that <laughs> we we just don't know about, let's uh, let's go to some stuff that we do have a little bit better grasp on. Um, Austin, why don't you take the listeners at home through the testing process? So like if someone thinks they have this this disease, they think they have COVID-19 or were exposed to it. Uh, what happens to them? Yeah. So hopefully, you know, you're in an area or you have access to healthcare in a place where they're actually able to offer you a test. That's been a big issue is just in general, as we mentioned, a, a lack of testing across the U.S., inadequate, inadequate testing. The standard test or the test that's currently being recommended is a nasopharyngeal swab. And what that means is the nasopharynx is kind of the back of the nose, upper throat kind of area, which is rather uncomfortable and unpleasant to have swabbed. It needs to get pretty far back there, but that's where it has been determined to give the best test results on the current test, which is a PCR-based test, a polymerase chain reaction-based test that basically is kind of a a genetic-based test. A lot of other infectious conditions that we look for, we use other serologies where we draw blood. And oftentimes we're looking for antibodies and things like that against it. We don't have anything like that for this particular infection at the moment. Um, And and there's been a bunch of different tests that are being developed by different organizations, some uh, global health organizations, some like private organizations, some health centers uh, have been developing their own out of kind of uh, necessity in some places. And so this variability in the tests leads to variability in test performance and makes it even more difficult to interpret some of the data that we get as a result. Because again, we've talked in other podcasts about ideas like sensitivity, how good is a test at catching all the cases that, that there are, even if there are some false positives along with that, how specific is the test for identifying the actual thing that you're looking for. Um, uh, and, and some of these test care, uh, performance statistics are currently unclear. And so it's safe to assume that there is some degree of false positive tests that we're getting, uh, uh, as well as false negative tests that we're getting. And some people just, it's unknown how much of that is actually happening. Ideally, it's as little as possible, but 
there's no such thing as a perfect test. You know, they all have their flaws and imperfections. And that's why kind of, you know, uh, we need clinicians to interpret these things. Um, and then on top of that, again, as I said before, there's varying thresholds for testing in terms of who is pursuing testing. And, and, you know, in general, uh, particularly if people are familiar with our content on screening, like we are not fans of testing people who are uh, don't have any symptoms or who are asymptomatic. But a lot of our conversations and discussion around those uh, of that, that topic is in the context of non-communicable disease, like cancer screening and things like that. Uh, not to say we need to go and test every single human on, on earth for this condition, but this is a, this, this situation, there are implications even for diagnosing somebody if it is a true positive in somebody who doesn't have a ton of symptoms because it then influences or has the potential to influence their behavior, what you do with them, who they may go on to infect, et cetera. So do you have any thoughts on who should get tested for this? So I know like the CDC has guidelines for, you know, who should get tested. And I'm just wondering, you know, because we can just refer people to the website, you know, yeah. oh, if you are in the hospital and you have signs and symptoms of COVID-19, you should be tested sure. for it. Or if sure. you were exposed to somebody with COVID-19 you, yeah. and it's been within two weeks, you should be tested for it. Uh, yeah, people at home are like, well, I'm not in a hospital and I don't know if this person had COVID-19, but I do have a fever and now I'm coughing. Uh, should I get tested or what? Yeah, this is something that I am a bit hesitant to comment on. And the main reason is that just even in the past week, guidelines that I've seen on this, both at a local and a broader level, have been changing pretty quickly. Um, and, and this has to do with, you know, initially we were saying, hey, if you... Uh, if you have been traveling to certain places or if you've been in contact with somebody who was known to test positive and you develop characteristic signs and symptoms, then you might get tested. But now we know that as this thing has gone beyond the scope of containment uh, and more to what we call mitigation, we, we are kind of just know that this thing is going to be spreading through the population, then those particular aspects of a clinical presentation are less uh, uh, kind of predictive. In other words, there are now ample numbers of people who haven't traveled to those places, who haven't gone on cruises, who may not have come into close contact with somebody who has already tested positive, again, due to a lack of testing, who themselves have the infection. And so these, these kind of guidelines are changing pretty rapidly. Even another example that is recently, uh, uh, I expect, going to be changing is like this testing sequence where you get the regular viral panel and if you test positive for something on that, then there have been some recommendations that you can stop there uh, because of a low risk of co-infection with other with COVID-19 if you already have one of the other ones. Well, that may not be the case. You may well be co-infected. And so I think that if you have symptoms, particularly those that are progressive, uh, uh, then, you know, on the social kind of uh, distancing that's being recommended, I think that's a reasonable first step. If your symptoms are progressive or if you have access to testing and you want to pursue it, I think that's probably fine in this situation because a positive mm -hmm. test is going to reinforce your need for social distancing, although a negative test should not uh, uh, make you want to go out in public and hang out with huge groups of people anyway. Um, so I think that, you know, it, it really is going to come down to your access to testing and the degree of your symptoms. I've been telling people who've been asking me like, hey, when should I go pursue medical, you know, care, medical evaluation? And really like for otherwise healthy people, my main guideline that I've been suggesting to them is like, hey, if you're having, if you develop shortness of breath, that's like the main thing that's going to raise a whole bunch of concern on my end that things are progressing to a more significant pneumonia. Um, but again, those are going to be a minority of cases. But as I said, these guidelines are changing day to day. So everything I just said, you know, tomorrow could be <laughs> changed. Yeah, but I think it highlights the point that it, it, the when you're on the sort of fence about do you need medical attention to survive, you know, if you're if you're starting to go down that road 
i.e. you're getting short of breath, for example, then you're going to need to be worked up for that yeah. period. Yeah. And so not, and so it's not necessarily worth it to get uh, a positive diagnosis of COVID-19 just so you can continue to sit at home. You should just self-isolate. That's, yeah. that's the, that's the point here. Okay. Uh, this actually dovetails nicely into the next section of this podcast, the clinical course. So like what actually happens if you were to get infected with this and we'll start off, we'll kick it to Cyrus. We'll talk about the incubation period. Now, the only thing I know about incubation is the little eggs, you know, you yes. put them in an incubator and then out comes a little chicken. That's the only thing I know. Uh, and then Incubus was a great band from the late oh, 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, yes, pardon me. Yes. I'm just saying. Oh, man. Shout, Huge shout Incubus out. fan. Huge yeah. Incubus fan. Fun fact, uh, this is not related, but, you know, I'm here just for comic relief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was in Virginia Beach, July 4th, having dinner out on Virginia Beach shore. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I hear the intro to Pardon Me coming, like, and a live band sort of situation. And I look over and sure enough, it's they're performing. Oh and I God. was like, I know. And then Eve six came on after that. And I was oh. like, you know what? This is the greatest night of my life. Dude, you're killing me. Yeah, man. <laughs> I and I was, it's funny. I was just talking to Austin. I was like, I've got tickets for incubus in three eleven in July. And I'm legitimately concerned that that's going to get canceled. It makes me very <laughs> sad. Yeah. Kind of like the but, Olympics. But yeah. uh, onto more uh, but, pressing yeah. matters. Yes, more pressing <laughs> matters. So, so yes. Um, unlike chickens and eggs and incubators, um, we're talking about something a little bit differently, a little bit different here. Um, so, with a lot of disease processes, and particularly in the case of viruses, you can have what's called an, an incubation period, um, and like a latency period, and then a, a period of kind of where you're having. Um, active disease. So the incubation period really refers to um, the time from when you have infection um, until you have actual symptoms. Um, and then that's when you begin kind of like you're the acute phase of your disease where you're actually, you know, in this case, you have fever, typically a dry cough, um, body aches, um, fatigue, those sorts of symptoms. It, um, and, and then, um, you know, there's also this idea of a latency period which is basically the time, uh, the, the point at which you get the, uh, the, um, the infection uh, up until um, when you're kind of infectious um, with respect to other people. Um, so it's kind of, uh, to kind of clarify that, it's assumed that um, you're kind of infectious from about 12 hours prior to the onset of symptoms. Um, and that obviously is, is challenging because, you know, you don't, you don't know when you're, when you're going to, um, you know, when you're going to come down with symptoms. So, um, so that's part of the reason why we, we worry about people being in large groups, um, close with one another is the, the idea of these kind of asymptomatic infections, which, um, we believe to be possible. Um, it's just that there isn't data to say, okay, we definitely have, you know, this case that, um, of COVID-19, um, and where this person contracted it from someone who is asymptomatic. We just, we just don't have that data right now. Um, but we assume that it's possible. Um, we also kind of, uh, assume that symptomatic and, and based, based, based on the, uh, based on the cases that we're seeing, uh, we can say with a reasonable degree of confidence that symptomatic individuals are, are more contagious, um, than these asymptomatic folks. Um, again, this is by extrapolation. Um, 
And then, you know, in terms of just kind of when people end up getting symptoms, it seems like within four to five days is when folks will develop symptoms after they've been exposed. Um, but we are seeing cases where that is delayed up to, to even two weeks, so, so 14 days. Um, but again, the majority of folks is going to be kind of in that four to five day window after exposure. Yep. So if you were exposed to somebody who ends up getting diagnosed with COVID-19 and they tell you, well, there's your, your two-week quarantine I mean, that's just something you should you should be doing. Um, the asymptomatic thing, you know, people on the, on the internet are raving about this. Well, you can be asymptomatic and you know transmit this. Yeah, there's a paper out of Germany that that uh, documented a case on that, and we definitely think that it's possible. Uh, it just we don't really have good data on how often that happens, and and you know, were the asymptomatic people even really asymptomatic? For example, did they just have mild symptoms and they didn't, you know? report those as symptoms like we don't exactly we don't know. that's or exactly this, right or was this before they actually developed symptoms we don't we don't know so the definition is a little uh, it's tough it's tough so in any case yeah we think that before when you get it uh you're about you're, you start start being infectious about 12 hours before symptoms start but it's hard to know that in retrospect so you know you could feel fine one night wake up in the morning have all these symptoms well you were probably infectious 12 hours before and uh you continue to be infectious uh, for about four or five days, um, it, as long as you're active, you know, when you're having symptoms, but uh, that can last for up to two weeks. So that's kind of why we're, that's that two week number that keeps getting thrown around. Um, Austin, you want to comment on like how this thing's actually spread? Like how do people get infected even? Yeah, the, it's thought that the main form of transmission with this, as it is with many of these other respiratory viruses, including the other coronaviruses, is via large kind of respiratory droplets. Um, and these are, you know, thought to be dis, you know, dispersed via coughs and sneezes, things like that. And they can travel, you know, a few feet, uh, about a four to six foot radius around the symptomatic individual. And then gravity just kind of they settle down on particular surfaces and they can persist. There's some some data emerging, including a New England Journal paper just published, I think, within the past couple of days, uh, actually yesterday on this, looking at the aerosol and surface stability of these uh, droplets. So they can persist upwards of several hours to upwards of several days, uh, kind of depending on the nature of the surface, the surrounding environment, temperature, UV light, et cetera, et cetera. So the, they can, you know, this is part of why hand washing is pretty important and then uh, very important, in fact, and then, you know, you don't want to be coming into contact with uh, potentially contaminated surfaces. The idea of airborne transmission is a bit different than droplet. Airborne transmission involves kind of more persistent infectious particles that are kind of hanging about in the air. And there are other conditions that are characterized more, uh, by airborne transmission as well, like measles is one example of these, where there's much smaller sized particles. They can spread further. They can persist in the air for a while, even after the person has left that particular area. And so there's some thinking that aerosol-based uh, airborne uh, transmission of this particular or, uh, uh, virus is possible, but it's still not thought to be the primary mode of, of transmission. And, it, and when it does happen, it seems to be most likely to occur in healthcare settings, like if somebody is getting intubated or have a breathing tube put down their throat, or if they're on particular types of, you know, assisted ventilation, uh, things like that, that may aerosolize uh, some of these things, or, or if they're undergoing certain procedures. So probably possible, probably not the primary way that this is transmitted. And uh, again, we think that asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic uh, uh, transmission is, is probably possible. But again, the degree to which it's significant is kind of a TBD. All right. So you got these large droplets that are hanging out for hours to days on some surfaces, or you've got these airborne particles just hanging on, hanging around in the ether of the air. 
And uh, so then what happens, Cyrus? You just, you like inhale these things and they go to work. They set up shop, you know, start paying rent in your lungs or, or what, what happens? Yeah, unfortunately, they're... Um they're kind of like the, you know, the renters that you just can't evict and they, they mess up all your shit and you just, you know, can't get rid of them. So, uh, <laughs> until, until the, until everything, uh, until the situation kind of, uh, runs its course. And that, that's kind of what goes on in, in a lot of these kind of viral respiratory illnesses. So, um, so again, kind of like Austin was saying, typically for, for the vast, vast majority of people we're concerned about droplet, um, droplet transmission, airborne transmission. Um, in that New England Journal of Medicine article, they basically created the ideal scenario for airborne transmission and proved that it was possible. Um, and that's why we say, as far as the airborne transmission, the folks that, that maybe need to wear those big, thick, what we call N95 masks, those are really going to be folks like myself who could be intubating those patients or respiratory therapists that are working with those patients, not your average person. Uh, average person, you know, they're hanging out with a friend and, um, you know, maybe friend wasn't feeling so great, coughed up, um, had a productive cough. And now all of a sudden um, you've inhaled um, whatever it is that they coughed up and, and it happened to have some virus in there. And so the virus will directly attack uh, cells in the lungs, particular cells in the lungs through a particular mechanism that's probably not worth going through here in this forum. Um, but uh, but through that, um, you know, attacking of the cells in the lungs, it can cause damage to the lungs. Um and, and really cause this, this big, um, massive kind of inflammatory response, which can lead to the, the worsening of symptoms, particularly worsening of your, your, um, of the respiratory status, uh, in, in an individual and then, and lead to complications. Um, now, you know, it should be, I think most folks probably realize this by now, but, um, it should be stated that there is a huge spectrum of illness associated with COVID-19. So, um, some generally speaking, you've got a 32 year old, otherwise healthy person has really no, no medical issues to speak of gets COVID-19. Um, they are, are also going to inhale those viral particles. They will also get damage to their lungs, but it's really in all likelihood going to be no different than a common cold or the kind of rhinovirus that we see in, and we scoff at essentially, um, and then uh, that's not to say that someone who is healthy and young can't get severe disease, but by and large, we're seeing severe disease in much older folks. And so, you know, for example, let's say you as the 32-year-old um, otherwise healthy person has very mild disease, goes to visit um, grandma or grandpa who's got a bunch of medical problems, um, and, you know, you cough. Um, again, you don't know what's going on, but you cough. Uh, and grandma, grandpa gets uh, ultimately infected with COVID-19. And so those folks who have a lot of medical problems, who are um, more elderly, um, they're the ones who generally are more likely to have more uh, severe illness or be critically ill, end up in the intensive care unit um, and develop kind of um, potentially overwhelming lung injury or lung disease that requires um, pretty aggressive measures um, for therapy. Gotcha. So a wide spectrum of what people can experience with COVID-19 infection, that's in the short term. But long term, what do we know about this thing? I don't think we know all that much because there hasn't been 
any, uh, we haven't had a long term yet since the uh, uh, kind of emergence of this condition. We do think of, again, that the majority of individuals who are infected are going to improve and resolve without much in terms of complications. But kind of what I would say is obviously we have plenty of experience with people, you know, having overwhelming, you know, respiratory failure, uh, uh, what we call ARDS, acute res respiratory distress syndrome, um, who require these kind of aggressive ventilation measures in the ICU and, and, you know, from other contexts where we see that, say other severe types of pneumonia, for example, there can, are potentially a whole lot of long-term complications after that. You know, it can take people months to potentially even longer for them to recover, you know, uh, what we consider normal kind of respiratory function, normal uh, exercise tolerance. Um, there are other complications that can happen when somebody is in that uh, acute kind of critical care uh, setting. They can have damage to their heart from these viruses, can end up in kidney failure, other infections can develop. Uh, you can have myopathy, so damage or loss of muscle mass, neuropathy issues, and even psychiatric things like, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder after a prolonged and really complicated, uh, a very traumatic uh, ICU stay. And so, you know, I think that a lot of those potentially longer term issues are things that we're likely to see among those who have the most severe, uh, who are most severely affected by this. And again, that is mostly older folks, but there are plenty of stories going around right now, even in the medical community of younger people, healthcare professionals, physicians, things like that, who are say in their, you know, in their thirties, forties, et cetera, who are ending up in this situation. Although it's less common, it can definitely happen. And, uh, and the complications of a long, complicated ICU stay are, can be pretty, pretty significant. Yeah, there seems to be uh, some thinking uh, that it's due to like the load of virus that they get in that setting being quite substantial rather than like this sort of like glancing sort of exposure. Mm -hmm. Somebody coughed, there's a respiratory droplet that they happen to inhale and, you know, it's a not necessarily just a milder clinical course, but it takes longer to like ramp up and all this other sort of stuff versus somebody actively has, you know, is in the throes of symptomatic COVID-19 and then they just got a big dollop of it. So it's like too much butter on your toast. They just got, you know, it's too much. That's the thought, but we don't know for sure. Uh, and I, in either case, we, we assume that if you've been infected with it, you, you're probably not going to get reinfected with it, uh, just based because it's likely the same strains floating around. So you have developed some immunity, but again, as Austin pointed out, we just don't have enough like long-term sort of data on this to really comment confidently on like what happens after you get this and after it resolves. Um, one interesting question we've gotten uh, and I'll pitch this to Austin, has to do with uh, pregnancy, pregnant women. So there are some infections we know that are vertically transmitted from mom to baby, um, either via the, you know, transplacental, so like through the placenta, or actually during birth, like so through the birth canal. So examples would be like syphilis or herpes, hepatitis B, for example, all have evidence of vertical transmission from mom to baby. It doesn't seem like that's the case with COVID-19. Uh, can you comment on that, Austin? Yeah, I think the main comment is that we don't know a whole lot yet. <laughs> There's been very, very little data reported on this. And really, uh, you know, for example, there's a couple reports of, I think about a total of 18 pregnant women who had suspected or confirmed COVID-19 pneumonia who did not have evidence of transmission to the neonate. But there have been uh, two other cases of neonatal infection that have been documented. Uh, and so the way that this transmission happened are still not really known. And so really what I would say, rather than hypothesizing about this, is I would really just direct people to the CDC's website on coronavirus. They have a subsection specific to pregnancy. 
And I assume that they're going to keep this very up to date as more information emerges on the pregnancy question. So I just go there. If you are pregnant or trying to become pregnant, have questions about this res it pertains to pregnancy, just go there. Yep. All right. Uh, so now moving along. So we, we've kind of laid the groundwork for like what COVID-19 is, how you get infected with it, you know, the clinical course, getting tested and all that other sort of stuff. So <laughs> that's a lot of bad news, dudes. What can we do about this? Cyrus, what should we be doing? And, and I think just before we even get into that, like it does seem like if you're particularly, I would imagine if you're in the the general public, like it seems like our response to this particular uh, pandemic is way, way bigger than H1N1 or SARS or Ebola or Zika virus. So like, why? Yeah, I think that's, it's an important, um, important question to, to bring up. And um, there are several great graphics looking at these various viral um, infections. I looked at one today, a recent publication in, uh, I think it was in Nature, um, that really looked at what we, you know, mortality, which is what most lay people are, are, are thinking about is how likely am I, how likely is someone to die from this disease? Cause that's what kind of suggests how bad it is. Um, looking at basically that mortality versus, um, what we call the R naught or the infectivity. Um, and so, uh, what I'll, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. I'll unpack that a little bit. Basically, um, in a nutshell, the infectivity of a disease is how it can be thought of as how many people uh, is one person on average likely to spread the infection to. Um, and there's actually a Annals podcast uh, like a week or two weeks ago that discussed this. It was, it was really great for folks that are, have any interest in statistics. But that's kind of how they they summarize it. There is like you know if I have COVID nineteen. How many people am I likely to infect with COVID-19? And that's based upon the um, the likely number of contacts for an average person in a particular environment uh, and then takes into account just um, other characteristics that are specific to the disease itself. And so COVID-19, we estimate, is around uh, 2.5. So again, you can think of that as um, if I have COVID-19, I'm likely to give it to two to three other people. Um, um, and that would be like the, the r not. Um, whereas SARS, which was much more fatal, I think the, um, you know, it was, I want to say it was like 10% um, mortality, as I recall, um, was, uh, was also more infective with um, an R naught value of like two to five. Um, and uh, that being said, um, but I think because it was so obviously, um, it, was, it was so, so fatal, you know, 10% is a lot of people. Um, the ability of um, folks to kind of contain that and get that locked down was um, was such that within about six months we were able to control it. I mean, yeah, you just had you just had more people, yeah, more dying. people dying, and yeah. so so you had less people that you needed to quarantine because it's like, well, a substantial That's amount just, of them were not making it. That's right. And I think there's also a component of like when a bunch of people are dying, people tend to do shit a little faster than when not as many people are dying. Um, it's just kind of the nature of, of the beast. Um, but then you can compare that to, let's say measles. Um, and Austin was doing a little research into this where, um, you know, you've got droplet, you've got airborne transmission. Well, the R naught, uh, is estimated from several resources to be 12 to 18. So super infectious disease, um, in terms of the number of people that, that you can spread that to. Um, so really all of this is to say that the, um, 
the the math that goes into this is how fatal is the disease and how likely is it to be transmitted from person to person. And so when you have a disease that is not, um, it's uh, don't get me wrong, it's obviously a, a disease that can be fatal, um, has about a, you know, one to two percent, it seems like fatality rate um, from what we can tell. It obviously has a lot of um morbidity associated with it, but it's still, it's not like SARS. It's not like Ebola. Um, so you take a disease that's kind of on the lower end of the spectrum, so to speak, and then you combine it with, um, that sort of, um, did that degree of infectivity, like I said, about two to three people, you get something that is, is kind of primed to spread pretty effectively through a large population. And so I think when epidemiologists yeah, look at that, they realize, okay, this is something we really need to um, to, to attack pretty aggressively. Right. It's just harder to contain because one, it does spread a little bit, a little bit more. And at that same time, less people, there's actually just a lower mortality rate there. So it's like, yeah, two, two pushes towards, you know, rapid, rapid spread, um, which I think is why people are so concerned yeah. appropriate, appropriately. So it's important to point out that this value, this R value we're pointing, we're talking about is not static for a particular organism. It's variable because it's determined by viral factors, host factors, the human, as well as social and environmental factors. Um, meaning that, you know, if you rearrange your social organization, for example, with the social distancing and quarantining people and things like that, then they don't have an opportunity to pass it on to those two to three other people. And so that value is kind of dynamic based on some of these things. Uh, uh, as well, yeah. you know, like social organization between countries. So you might have a different value between countries, cities, societies, groups of people, et cetera. Yeah. What we'd like to do is get that R naught value down to below one via all these changes we're making, because that would limit the spread dramatically. And that would help contain this uh, uh, more, more uh, effectively. Um, so that's why a lot of these steps are being taken. Um, in any case, this is obviously spreading. We were having uh, a substantial uh, amount of fatality uh, per cases that are diagnosed. And I think, you know, people should not try to compare this in order to minimize it to previous diseases that we've had, or certainly the weirder comparisons like chronic diseases, like <laughs> more people die from obesity or cardiovascular disease, you know, than it's like, it's not the same thing. Uh, and, you're not comparing apples to apples. Right. And then the last thing the, that I'll say about this is the uh, insinuation that this is like a deployed virus, a biological agent to like do harm from one country to another is the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. And, and not just, just because you're a sheep, like, man. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm going to have like a grown man just like, you know, bah, at me. Like it's going to happen in public, you know, when when this thing this is over. They're going to be like, you're just stupid sheep. Um, was that a lamb? I actually don't know what kind of sounds <laughs> that sheep make. But the point, the point is this. Imagine that, you know, you were trying to create this biological agent. And you were like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to deploy it in a country. Uh, and then it's going to spread worldwide. And we're not going to be able to pick who it infects. Can't do that. And it's going to have a pretty low, uh, relatively low mortality rate too. 
Um, yeah, is that cool? Is that what you guys are looking for? This completely uncontrollable, like relatively low mortality rate. I like, I'm not trying to like reduce the severity of what's going on here because even if the, uh, case fatality rate is, you know, 2%, that's still a lot of people, particularly if we don't do anything again, if we don't do anything and 80% of the United States gets infected, that's 2.2 million people that are likely to, uh, to pass away from this infection. So it could be a big deal. But I'm just saying, if you were trying to deploy this as a biological agent, that those aren't the numbers you're looking for. Uh, I would assume. I'm not a terrorist. Uh, I, I know that I have a robust beard, but, you know, just saying. I, yeah, let's... Let's send it to Snopes. Yes, They'll figure I think it out that's for a, I think right. that's a very uh, that's a good a good place to end off on as far as that goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so, all right. The first thing that people talk about uh, when I say people, I mean you know epidemiologists, public health officials, uh, international and national organizations, uh, health organizations. They're always talking about hygiene. They're saying, you know, wash your hands. It's like I don't need another person on Facebook to tell me to wash my hands. However. There is a little nuance here, and we know we like to bring the nuance to the people. Hand soap versus hand sanitizer, which generally has alcohol in it or other sort of uh, agents. So, Brocky, you want to weigh in on this? Like in the hospital, you're just hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer over and over and over again until your hands bleed. That's how this. <laughs> that's how I remember intern years. Just like, oh wow, I can actually see the tendons now in my <laughs> extensor digitorum because I've actually wiped all the skin away using all this alcohol like what's the difference between soap and hand sanitizer and like how any sort of special techniques that people should be taking when they're washing their hands yeah i think the main the main uh, uh difference is soaps has a better ability to actually break down the viral envelope which is kind of the 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 contain the the surrounding particle that contains the uh, rna inside the the virion to use some terminology there. So it, it more effectively breaks that down, which is, you know, basically what kills the virus. If we want to use uh, that, uh, you know, alive and dead type terminology with viruses, which itself is a whole, whole can of worms, but that's another thing. Yeah. So are you, t- are you telling me that all this Purell that I hoarded <laughs> is not as effective as just regular hand soap? Yeah. I think that soap is probably a more effective way to go about this. Uh, and the main things to pay attention to there would be number one, the duration. So, so the standard recommendation right now is about 20 seconds, which is longer than people think. And in general, I would recommend being, uh, kind of a bit more broad in how you do it. So not just like your palms, getting the back of your hands, getting under the nails, getting a little bit further up the forearm, almost like you're, you're scrubbing for a surgery or something. Although it doesn't have to be that extensive either. <laughs> so, so it needs to be practical, but yeah, soap, soap and water for a sufficient duration, um, uh, taking care of the, uh, the aspects of your hand that you might otherwise neglect will, will do the job pretty well. That detergent though, yeah. turns out all those, all those Purell hoarders just listening. So like, no, <laughs> why did you say that? Yeah. Uh, Cyrus, tell us about the mask, not like, not like Batman, like no one cared about me till I put on the mask, but like the mask. Uh, <laughs> like, so like, like Jim Carrey? Should people be going out and getting masks? <laughs> Jim, yes, exactly like Jim Carrey, yes. So um, short answer is no. Um, I think if you're, you know, we're dealing with a nationwide and worldwide shortage of masks, both of the surgical variety and the quote unquote N95 mask, which is for kind of uh airborne precautions. We talked about airborne transmission already. Um, and so really the best recommendation I can make is if you, um, 
do your best to participate in social distancing, which we'll talk about in some detail in um, just a moment, um, then there's really not a reason why um, the kind of average person who's not working in a healthcare environment or surrounded by obviously sick people, there's not a reason for that person to wear a surgical mask. Um, and there's certainly not a reason for them to wear an N95 mask. Um, and this is kind of the guidance that we're getting across the board um, from the WHO, from the CDC, um, from other kind of um, infectious disease experts and epidemiologists. Um, I haven't heard otherwise as far as the average person. Um, that's kind of my uh, that's my, my best guidance as far as the masks go. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've been seeing a lot of people walking around with masks of all different varieties. So like masks for painting, yeah. for example, and like, you know, or like, like small, like hobbies. So like you're like making your Pinewood Derby car <laughs> or something like that. And now you happen to have like a extra mask. So, and, and then, you know, people will look at you in public, like, Oh my gosh, you're one of those, you're hoarding the masks. You're, you're part of the problem. Look, the shortage problem isn't necessarily from people buying them. This, this is like a state level and federal level, like stockpiling issue. Like just based on the time between previous pandemics and all this other sort of stuff, like we should have been prepared for this. I'm not, you know, saying that the folks who bought all the masks are completely, you know, without fault, but like it's not Amazon's problem. Right. Right. It's not like your hospital is like going to place an Amazon Prime order for a bunch of N95 masks and then they just, oh, they're all sold out, like expected stock in the next seven to 14 days. If, if we just didn't have enough of these on hand. So that's a problem from a. Uh, policy level, but you know, we'll keep this apolitical <laughs> and move, move right yeah. on. Uh, but yeah, probably don't need a mask unless you're infectious, in which case you should be quarantining, but you, should, <laughs> you still don't need a right. mask because you're at home. Yes. All right. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the thing with the biggest, biggest potential driver uh, to hashtag flatten the curve, social distancing, staying away from people. So this has the strongest evidence. And I think it's important to note this involves, this includes voluntary quarantining. So keeping people at home, um, not just of like high risk populations, but like the entire population. So, uh, we feel like not we, but like researchers, public health researchers, um, expect that this reduces contact, uh, with other humans by about 75%, although it does increase your household contact. So people who live at your home. Um, this also includes closing schools, universities, reducing mass gatherings, canceling all that, uh, all the events. So all of this stuff is part of social distancing. Um, Cyrus, you want to talk about like, why, why did we figure out that this would actually yeah. work? Like, how do we figure out this would work? And, and, you know, why is it being implemented now? So like you said, this is probably the most important thing that we can uh, put out to our, our audience. And it's, it's, it's funny because I, you know, less than a week ago, we were having this discussion um, regarding, you know, should people continue to go to the gym? And both of us were kind of like, well, right now there isn't any compelling evidence to, to tell people otherwise, um, assuming they meet certain characteristics. And we kind of had this whole back and forth and then, uh, you know, 10 seconds pass and all of a sudden, things have changed and, you know, we're getting a better idea as to what we're dealing with. And, and that really just speaks to, again, this uh, constantly evolving situation that we're dealing with. And so, you know, we're seeing more and more similarities between what's going on to the Spanish flu of, of 1919. Um, and so the reason I bring that up is that there was an article in PNAS in 2007 by Hatchet et al., which I reviewed um, 
basically looking at public health interventions um, and epidemic intensity during the um, basically during the Spanish flu during the 1918 influenza pandemic. And so they specifically looked at Philadelphia and St. Louis, where in uh, in Philadelphia, they had their first case on September 17th, 1918. And it was downplayed um, where uh, amongst uh, politicians and amongst the people of Philadelphia, um, they did not institute any sort of social isolation or bans on large gatherings until early in October. So for about two, two and a half weeks in, and that was compared to St. Louis where, uh, they had their first case on October 5th, 1918. And by October 7th, those, um, those measures were implemented. And if you look at the graphs in terms of number of cases in St. Louis as compared to Philadelphia, the difference is just undeniable. It's huge. And, and so the idea is that when you're socially distancing, it's essentially, you know, you're voluntarily reducing your contacts with others to um, a very, very small subset of folks and uh, to those industries that you must access. So you need to go to the grocery store, understood. You know, you may have a couple other places that for whatever reason you need to go. You know, for me, I do periodically need to go to work at the hospital, so I have to do that. Um but other than those things that you need to do, um, you really shouldn't be doing anything else. And why this kind of comes into play when we talk about this theoretical, this asymptomatic um, carrier, for example, where you may say, well, you know, I wasn't around anyone sick. But again, if someone is able to spread infection um, without any symptoms, then you simply don't know. And if we have data that suggests that the droplets uh, can potentially last on surfaces for periods of time, then who's to say that um, you know you're dealing with surfaces that do not have um, viral particles on them? So, so it's not necessarily that you're avoiding people who are obviously sick, who you would probably otherwise avoid, even if you were not socially isolating. It's all of the potential confounders there, um, the sort of subclinical um, opportunities for contact, and so that's why um, social isolation, or sorry, I should probably use the term social distraction, uh, social distancing, because it, I don't know, it sounds a little better to me than social isolation. Um, but, but that's why that works is it's really um, giving, um, it's putting a buffer in between you and potential um, points of contact with, with illness and thereby um reducing the huge boom in the number of cases we could face. Um, so for example, if you look at what's happened, what's happened in Italy and what's continuing to happen in Italy, they basically had this huge explosion of cases that far exceeded their hospital system's ability to surge, or in other words, to increase capacity to meet the demand. And because of that, you know, I'm reading every day these accounts from Italian doctors who are having a hard time deciding who to ventilate and who not to ventilate because they simply don't have the resources. The thought is, if you can reduce the um, amplitude by which the number of cases grows um, to something more manageable, um, then perhaps you can um, utilize that strategy over time to combat disease. Um and for those of you that like kind of a visual representation, um, the um, I think it's the Washington Post has a great little um, article. If you search like Washington Post uh, coronavirus, um, you can see this little um, dot diagram that kind of shows um, in an in overly simplified but still powerful sense how this whole process works. If you have no social uh, no social um, distancing, if you have like a mandatory quarantine, and then a couple other scenarios, and really spoiler alert is 
um, instituting these policies works. Um, and that's why we feel so strongly about it. Yeah, particularly uh, when we're talking about high yield social distancing. And what I mean by that is like things that people do frequently and in large numbers. So like going out to bars, going to restaurants, uh, you know, other sorts of things like that, um, limiting that will have a big impact compared to, you know, closing down uh, or not going to a place where there's only one other person. So like uh, Alan, I asked Alan, hey, did you go to your gym yesterday? So he owns a gym in California. He's like, yeah. And I was like, and it was just you. He's like, yeah. And I was like, well, you probably didn't need to stay at home to avoid that because you got in your truck, you drove to your gym, you're the only person there. Like that's still social distancing just, you know, happens to be at a gym, you know, but somebody might've seen him working out and be like, what the heck, man, you're not staying at home. It's like, well, he's still social distancing, right? There's literally nobody in contact with him during that entire excursion. So, uh, sorry if I threw you under the bus, Alan, but that's, you know, sometimes it'd be like that. (laughs) We would do Uh, the same thing. (laughs) What's that? We would do the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Austin, you didn't stay inside your home. You you walked outside and to your you know garage to train. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. People really want to know Austin. Well, there's a lot of things that people want to know. How are you so handsome? How are you so well spoken? Like, really, what's the totally. deal? Totally cool. But <laughs> they're talking about different medications potentially for COVID-19, right? So people are throwing out all sorts of stuff. They're saying hydroxychloroquine, remdesivir, steroids, etc. Like. What's coming down the pike? Do we have good data on this stuff? Is there a cure in sight? Yeah. So, uh, no, there's not at the moment. Um, this is something also that's act, that's changing every single day. Um, in fact, a couple hours before uh, we started this podcast, there was a, a new trial published on um, a, pr- a medication that's previously been used for HIV called Kaletra, Lopinavir, Ritonavir, that was a negative trial, meaning it showed that this medication uh, had no benefit compared to placebo in the group that they studied it on. The hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine uh, at the moment seems to be one of the popular uh, uh, drugs that's being looked at, but I am hesitant to go m- into much more detail on it without more rigorous data And additionally, these are decisions that are going to be made by clinicians, not by regular people. I've been seeing posts by people or even clinicians who are talking about whether, you know, patients who want this medication for like prophylaxis to prevent this infection. I'm like, that is a horrible idea because the world is not ready to scale up production of hydroxychloroquine, which has traditionally been used to treat like lupus mainly. Um, to treat everybody in the world for this. And, and the price of that medication uh, has already increased markedly just you know recently because of some of this interest. So strongly recommend against people pursuing particular treatments. We need more data. This stuff's being studied actively. Um, you know, we can do the best we can in the inpatient medical ICU setting to, to manage the respiratory failure and the other complications. And then as we study this stuff, once something should something uh, end up giving us a positive signal in the data, then, then people will be the first to know for sure. Yeah. Yep. A lot of stuff uh, that's going to be studied and we just don't know yet. Although look, if you're the investor type, I'm just saying, yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying Remdesivir is looking pretty nice. I bought some Gilead, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, go get that stock. Uh, all right. There was a recent recommendation. I think this paper came out a couple days ago. Like if you're on an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, 
like many people are, if they got high blood pressure, if they've got heart disease or various different conditions, should they still take them? So it is true that the virus is thought to enter the pneumocytes or the lung uh, cells via this ACE2 receptor. And so ACE inhibitors are a drug that kind of work on the related system, not actually on that particular target. Um, but short answer is that we don't have any good evidence that, you know, being on those medicines either has a strong protective effect or a strong harmful effect. Um, so we don't know how those medications may influence the actual disease that we're dealing with. However, we do know that those medications have substantial benefit for people who have cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, things like that. So it's one of those situations where we have known benefit for all these conditions and we would have a known harm if we were to stop these uh, medications in those patients and we have unknown effects on this particular disease. So the recommendation, again, as of today, 18th of March, to continue taking these medicines if you're already on them. Uh, if you're not on them and you don't have any of those conditions, you don't need to go out of your way to pursue taking them uh, uh, with the idea that they may protect you or something like that. So that's just status quo with respect to ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And we mention it just because they're super, super common medicines that a lot of people are on. And there's probably going to be some headlines going around about. Yep. I'm told that we're very, very close to a vaccine. Uh, is that true? Uh, I will point out that we are not, in fact, close to a vaccine. It's going to take probably at least uh, estimates around 18 months for a vaccine to be developed and tested uh, for safety and, and deployed. So that's kind of on the horizon, but we're not there yet. Uh, obviously, it's a big deal to, to try to uh, uh, generate something like that. The only other treatment that I think is worth mentioning is the NSAIDs or ibuprofen, which people have been asking us a lot about. Uh, there's some theoretical risk that was proposed by some physician like out in France or something like that, and it generated a lot of concern. I don't think we have good evidence uh, that, it sh that it has significant harmful effects, again, as of today. Um, but there's kind of back and forth recommendations, even in the span of a few hours earlier today, I saw two different recommendations from WHO about recommending against the use of NSAIDs like ibuprofen or not recommending against the use of NSAIDs like ibuprofen. Um, so we just don't know, really know uh, whether they uh, have significant harm at the moment. All right. So I think at the end, we need to wrap this up by giving people some advice that they can uh, take home with them to where they should already be, uh, particularly with respect to training and, and nutrition stuff. That actually may be what they came here for. So uh, Jordan, what do you think? Yeah. So I think we first have to start off by saying that we would recommend that all individuals should aim to be physically active to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines for adults that we've talked about so many different times. Um, so for reference, that is the twice weekly resistance training and for aerobic training, achieving 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity uh, activity per week or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic activity per week. And so we've discussed that in our beginner prescription, which we've linked in the description below. Also, it's going to be a major part of the at-home template, which is coming out. So people who are listening to this are like, hey, when's your at-home workout template coming out? So we'll have both the free version and the paid version hopefully up within the next 24 hours. Uh, we've got some beta testers working on it right now. So in any case, we would recommend all individuals um, who don't have contraindications to exercise physical activity. Um, doing that. So even if you're symptomatic, if you're sick, something like that, we would recommend exercising if you feel like you're able to, provided that you're not going to increase others' risk of being infected. So if you're home quarantined, then that's not really a risk. If you feel like you can be physically active, you should definitely do so. Um, people who tend to, who are sick, who tend to be inactive and sedentary tend to do worse. And we see this in the hospital all the time. So we're not recommending 
that people who, you know, have the flu or who have COVID-19 or who have other illness just, you know, exercise with reckless abandon and, you know, pull a 1RM deadlift. But we definitely think that you should be physically active meeting these activity guideline minimums or exceeding them. Um, and uh, if you feel like you can exercise even when you're sick, we would probably do that. Um, although we would uh, recommend, you know, self-quarantining at home, which we all uh, almost are in the United States anyway right now. So, um with respect to actually structuring an at-home workout program, let's address the resistance training component first. So again, this should be two to three times per week um, at a minimum. The recommendations are twice weekly, so we'd aim to either meet or exceed those. The How you set this up is actually going to be equipment dependent. So the main goal is to try to get close to failure uh, for the muscle groups that you're actually working. So this would be within about five reps of failure or uh, with about 20 to 30 seconds of failure if you're doing an isometric exercise, which basically means that the muscles are contracting but not changing length so think so think about things like wall sits planks etc um, about 20 to 30 seconds prior to failure as best as you can estimate would kind of put you in that that zone and so the reason why we're trying to get you there is because that assures us that we're recruiting a substantial amount of muscle mass in the muscle groups that we're targeting um, and they're firing pretty rapidly to make sure that you're actually producing force now this is not the same um, you know doing a, a set of 30 reps to get you close to failure does not produce the same adaptations as doing you know a heavy single or triple or five, set of five with respect to strength because strength is specific to the context in which it's measured and uh, and and trained but as far from a muscular hypertrophy standpoint you can probably get pretty decent results here and kind of prevent atrophy and effectively retain your strength development um, outside of like specific skills and specific adaptations to uh, the various rep ranges so that's kind of the goal so if austin didn't have the you know training uh, setup that he does at home in his garage you know we'd probably be doing body weight uh, stuff or trying to figure out a way to add load um, you know you could strap a backpack to yourself add some books some water bottles uh, you know uh, uh, toilet paper if you hoarded it <laughs> or all your Purell bottles uh, to add some load um, things of that nature you can make uh, the other ways to make exercises harder besides just adding weight um, if you don't have access to that stuff is increasing the rep range, obviously taking the reps closer to, uh, you know, higher and higher till you get closer to that failure zone. Um, you can increase range of motion. So if somebody was doing half squats, now they do full squats. If they're doing regular push-ups to the floor, if you uh, stack books up to kind of make these makeshift parallettes so you can do deficit push-ups, um, those, those are ways to increase the range of motion, which make things harder. You can slow down the tempo, meaning that you're doing like a three second eccentric on the way down and three seconds on the way up. It makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, you could also make them plyometric. So doing uh, jump squats or clapping pushups if you're able to or something like that, uh, that would all make things harder. Uh, unilateral stuff. So instead of using um, both limbs, use doing one at a time. So split squats, Bulgarian split squats, pistols, if you can do that, those are one-legged squats. Um, One-arm push-ups, hey, if you got those in the bag, that's that's fine. But in, in any case, you're effectively reducing the amount of muscle mass that you're using to move a similar amount of weight, even if it's not exactly the same amount of weight. So yeah, that makes things a little bit more, more difficult. Uh, and then also you can add pauses at mechanically disadvantageous positions. So pausing at the bottom of a squat, pausing at the bottom of a push-up, something like that, all that stuff works. And, you know, if you're pretty well trained and you don't have access to any ballast, any load, any resistance, then one thing you might need to do is actually superset or stack exercises that are working similar muscle groups back to back. So it'd be something like for Austin, if he didn't have access to any weight, I might have him do like 20 body weight squats, then go immediately into 20 uh, walking lunges on each leg. And I think that it would get his legs pretty, you know, those 
muscle groups of his lower extremities pretty close to failure, you know, so I, again, obviously able to either maintain or even improve muscular hypertrophy and retain as much of his strength potential as we can, That uh, particularly the strength that's not specific to doing a heavy single, doing a heavy triple, doing a heavy set of five. Um, we expect that those adaptations to come back pretty quickly once returning to the gym. So, you know, it's not worth crying over over spilt milk. We're just going to try to do the best we can, stay active, and again, meet these sort of guidelines. So the overall guidelines would be to train all the major muscle groups two to three times per week. Should go close to that failure zone within five reps of failure, uh, or twenty to thirty seconds of failure if you're doing an isometric stuff. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've linked a kind of couple samples um, that we put in our newsletter for this past month. So you can check that out. Links in the description below. Um, overall, again, I would pick something. You know, one or two exercises for the lower extremity, uh, two to three exercises for the upper body, and a core exercise. Um, that would be my resistance training sort of uh, uh, template. And again, our at-home training template is going to be up hopefully within the next 24 hours. Our beta testers just got to get this thing back to me. So make sure that it's as bug-free as possible. It comes with a, a PDF that also kind of explains some of the thinking behind this. So you can have that as well. And then uh, the aerobic training component. So we just talked about resistance training. Again, we talked about the recommendations earlier, 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity uh, activity or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic activity. If depending on your geography, your risk level of, you know, bad outcomes or infecting other people. So how quarantined do you actually have to be? Um, you might be able to go outside, you know, go for a walk, go for a jog, go for a run, get on a bike, etc. Uh, also, if you have equipment, you know, you could ride the bike at home, you can run on a treadmill, you can, you know, row, whatever. If you don't have access to anything and you can't stay and you can't go outside at all because you live in like a densely populated area that there's a lot of active cases running around, then you're probably going to need to do uh, that vigorous intensity activity and would probably do intervals of things like like calisthenics. So like high knees, mountain climbers, jumping jacks, uh, jogging in place even. If you have a jump rope, you can use that. Uh, and so you do something like 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off for 15 to 20 minutes per day, and that'll get you over that 75 minute per week minimum or, uh, you know, something like one minute on one minute off, uh, for 20 minutes, uh, something like that. And I would do those, you know, four to five times a week, because again, if we're stuck at home, um, for quarantine, you know, then our activity level is probably going down. So I would try to replace that with activity with exercise. All right. And then the last part about this is with respect to immunosuppression and exercise. We had a bunch of people asking us like, hey, uh, should I stop exercising just in case I catch the virus? And, I, you know, wouldn't being immunosuppressed from exercise make it worse or be more likely to catch it? And the answer, short answer to that is no, particularly if you've been exercising physically active or training for a while. So effectively, you don't see those that immunosuppression to any significant degree if you've been doing this for a while. You tend to see it in folks who are just starting exercise for example, um, or uh, during periods of wildly different training that's 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 uh, basically overmatched to a person's current training ability. So if you're on an intelligent program, this really isn't a concern for you. And then to to uh, jump from there, um, since people are self-quarantined, I'm, I'm even less concerned about the immunosuppression that you might get because if you're really quarantined at home, it's, it's not a risk. In fact, you have a, a higher risk of bad outcomes from being sedentary than the transient immunosuppression um, in the context of someone who's quarantined and maybe already and just starting exercise. So, you know, on the off chance that somebody's listening to this, they're an hour and whatever, 15 minutes in, and they just have heard of us and they're like, oh, you know, I'm going to start exercising. Yeah, sure. They might have some a transient bout of immunosuppression, but the benefits of exercise outweigh the, the risks there, particularly in the context of someone who is quarantined at home. Uh, the second part about this is nutrition. Um, 
so just to start out, there are no magic foods or supplements. If you're selling like a supplement guide or a diet plan that's, you know, advertised around, you know, reducing your infectious risk or, you know, bad outcomes from infections, like just F you, you know. I know this is a chill, you know, this is a family show, but hey, that's that's terrible. That's that's egregiously wrong. And I don't know how you sleep at night ethically. We the data on this is very, very clear that we don't see substantial clinical benefits from any particular supplement, from any particular dietary strategy, rather um, appropriate nutrition, meaning that somebody's not malnourished and somebody eating an other, a diet that's other, otherwise comports with the you know, sort of uh, healthy dietary patterns that we've advocated for for a long time. So eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, eating lean protein, uh, that, uh, you know, meets the current recommendations of 1.6 to 3.1 grams per kilogram body weight per day based on what you, uh, what you need, keeping saturated fat under 10% of total daily calories. Um, this stuff is all laid out in our Science of Red Meat Intake article at the end if you need a TLDR. But if you're selling supplements, if you're selling uh, dietary plans based on the notion that you can reduce the risk of, you know, uh, uh, getting infected or, or having a bad outcome from being infected with COVID-19, like, man, I don't know what to say to you. That's that's just, that's bad news. So uh, we know that plant-based diets and animal-based diets both can do well um, post-infection. There's, one isn't better than the other. People are like, oh, nutrient-dense foods are better. It's like, I mean, only if you run the risk of not eating enough and it's a malnourishment situation, um, which leads me to my next point. Just because you're on a diet, particularly if you're battling um, excess adiposity, excess body fat, so you're losing weight, losing body fat, losing uh, inches off your waist, and all that other sort of stuff, that doesn't you're not malnourished. They, you're just you know unless again you don't have a stable food supply, and you know that's a different problem. But just because you're on a 500 kilocalorie per day deficit doesn't mean you're malnourished. It almost assuredly not if you're in a Western Western civilization. So uh, yeah, I would not recommend that people who are actively trying to lose weight. Um, due to, you know, given some excess adiposity. So they're trying to make the appropriate behavioral change there. I don't think you should stop losing weight. It doesn't put you at any increased risk of either, uh, you know, getting infected or having a bad outcome from getting the infection um, just by you being in a calorie deficit. In fact, the benefits of dealing with the obesity outweigh <laughs> the, you know, any potential uh, risk associated with eating less calories, which is, again, we don't see that risk at all. You have a greater risk of bad outcomes from, from having excess adiposity than, you know, being in a calorie deficit, which we don't see any, any real risk at all. So, uh, yeah, I don't even know where this came from, like this, uh, this whole idea, Austin, what do you, what do you think, man? So I think there's a, yeah, I think that obviously people uh, correlate like frank malnutrition with bad outcomes, but I don't think that's what people are worried about. I do think that the lifting community tends to associate calorie deficits with poor recovery. And then they're like, oh my God, if I get this infection, it's going to be way worse because of it. Um, and and I agree that this is not supported by any evidence. And in fact, I mean, I think Cyrus would agree that, you know, based on the, uh, if let, let me put it this way, if there was an effect of this, uh, then we would expect to see it in the sickest of the sick. And when they've done nutrition trials in medical ICU critical care patients, uh, comparing, uh, uh, giving them, you know, uh, just adequate or maybe even a slight under uh, uh, feeding of energy compared to overfeeding of people in that sort of a critical care setting, the people who are overfed in that situation tend to not do better. And oftentimes they do worse. So, 
that's a pretty common approach in the critical care setting is, is actually we don't tend to worry a ton about uh, uh, or we don't aggressively overfeed people in that situation because we don't have evidence they do any better from it. Cyrus, anything else you'd add on that? No, I think that's, I mean, that's absolutely right. We, um, <clears throat> there are a lot of logistic issues uh, when it comes to overfeeding in the ICU that obviously wouldn't be relevant um, to this population. But I would say that there's, there's really no, you know, with the exception of certain populations where they have like hypermetabolic conditions, again, people who we're not reaching to in this particular um, arena, yeah. it's, I mean, no, there's no need to go hog wild and just pound calories. <laughs> Yeah, well, you just make yourself more robust and you're less likely to have a bad outcome. Oh, yeah. wait, we've been fighting that notion for the longest time. That's yeah. called uh, obesity. Yeah, yeah, right, yes. Which is a risk yes. factor for a bad outcome with coronaviral infection is obesity. So Cor- Correct. So similar yeah. to how I'd be more concerned about people not exercising <laughs> during a pandemic than the you know potential spread of the pandemic by folks going to the gym – uh, which, you know, hot take. The I'm more concerned about the potential increase in obesity rates by people increasing their calories than the, you know, risk of malnutrition from maintaining a calorie deficit uh, if somebody happened to be on one. So I would maintain the current diet that somebody is currently eating and hopefully that comports with our previous recommendations if you're looking for like a, a – you know, a list, head over to the Science of Red Meat intake article. I've linked it in the description below. We kind of outline diet, what do, and uh, would would hit those uh, those things. And then the, the nuance here is if you find that you're gaining weight during this quarantine, as evidenced by your waist circumference increasing and or your the weight on the scale going up, then sure, I would reduce your calories. A little bit, you know, to to offset the lack of physical activity that's likely occurring secondary to the quarantine, um, and then I would also encourage folks to exercise. So, I don't know if I missed uh, missed anything uh, outside of uh, the recommendations. Yeah, only thing I added here is, you know, we talk a lot about the um, all the factors that play into obesity as, like, you know, a global problem. And, and there are obviously tons of them. We talk about the biological, psychosocial factors, environmental factors. And one of them that we talk about a lot is like food preparation skills. And this is a situation where if you're all stuck at home, then maybe it's an opportunity to develop and improve some of those food preparation skills. <laughs> yeah. You can learn how to cook a little bit yeah. or at least try just, yeah. but also like just, don't burn your house down because I feel like that would like defeat the purpose here. Just DM <laughs> Leah. She can teach you. Yes. Leah can teach you. Right. <laughs> yeah, she's, she's excellent. Very cool. Uh, Hey guys, I I think we did it. Yeah, man, we like we literally did a podcast on COVID nineteen. That's uh, uncharted <laughs> That's territory. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm suddenly becoming symptomatic just having now done all that that large brain oh, dump. Boy. I know. Yeah, the good thing is I I don't normally see humans in my day to day life. I just uh, wake up, drink coffee, stare at a computer for a series of hours by myself. And then, uh, yeah, r- rinse, lather, repeat. That's, that's my day. So, guys, I want to thank you so much for joining 
me on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Listeners, if you are interested in the references, sources, recommended resources, or any of the topics of the, that we referenced here, I've got a lot of information in the show notes, so check those out. And again, we can only verify the accuracy of this podcast up till 318-2020. Things may change, are likely to change, and, uh, you know, Maybe we'll have to do a second episode if things change uh, substantially. We get a we get a uh, big push on social media to do another one. But in any case, thank you guys so much for joining us. Leave us a five star rating and a review wherever you're getting your podcast from. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll see you guys next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.